church family, will you bow your heads in prayer with me as we go before our God? Almighty God, we thank you that you have given us, who are your children, your Holy Spirit. So we are filled with your Spirit, even as we come to you now, bringing our needs. Father, as we pray together as a church this morning, we continue to pray for our brother, Julian Chapman, this week, as he's in the hospital after his fall. Father, together we ask that you would please ease his pain from his broken ribs. Father, we ask that you would give his doctors wisdom, especially tomorrow during his surgery. Father, restore our, our brother and his body to health. Give him and Bonnie such sweet patience as they wait on you. And may they have entirely new depths that they find in their trust in you because of this trial. Father, as we pray together today, we are about to read your word about signs of your son. And Father, we want to pray for those in our church who struggle with doubt. Father, we pray for those among us whose faith at times wavers for ourselves as we at times waver in our belief. Father, would you work in us? Would the way that we trust you, even in our doubt, honor you? Help our unbelief. Father, we also pray for our church and for those who are hurting and feeling sometimes alone in our body. Father, this morning we pray for our sister Joan Hutchinson as she continues to grieve the loss of Desmond. Oh Lord, would you strengthen our sister? May she find comfort in you and with others in our body. Would you be with others who are in our midst who also face loneliness this week? Father, we pray not only for our own church, but we continue to pray for churches in other places and other countries. This morning we pray for Grace Christian Church in Cusco, Peru. As their church moves to a new location this month, Father, we pray that you would provide for their needs. We pray for Pastor Joe Martinez as he leads that body and preaches even today. Father, would you use your word to grow that church? Would you give them patience in the long work of seeing your word shape a church? Not over mere minutes, but over years of faithfulness. Father, we pray for one of their church members, Angel, who's being mentored as a possible elder. We thank you for your provision of Angel. We pray that you'd provide elders to that church. Father, we pray that for our church, as our elders regularly look for and pray for and equip other men in our church. Father, we pray that you would guide our pursuit of elders and deacons here. Maybe we, may we be quick to equip and disciple. And may we be wise and discerning in how we affirm these positions. Father, we now come before your word 
and we desire to place ourselves under the authority of your word. Lord, we desire to see Jesus Christ rightly. Give us spiritual insight into the light of Jesus. Open the eyes of our hearts that our whole church body would be full of light, having no part of it dark. Give us Christ. We plead with you, even now. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, this week, Hollywood writers finished their strike, finally came to an end, and among other shows, America is happy to welcome back fresh content to late night television comedy. I'm not going to supply you with any comedy this morning. Uh, but perhaps one of the more popular routines on late night comedy is the, the common se segment of sending out an interviewer into the streets of a city like New York City and recording random interviews on a given subject. Perhaps you've seen this bit before. It comes with responses just caught right there on camera for our entertainment. So for example, people are asked to maybe just give commentary on a current world issue going on, and they often respond with utterly wrong answers, showing how far off they are. And it's amusing to watch how happy people are to respond confidently and wrongly, even on camera, for the whole nation to watch. It's amazing how quickly we do the same thing. We reveal how little we know or how quickly we can look foolish in response to situations. Well, friends, foolish responses to notable events aren't anything new. In fact, as we come to today's passage, we meet crowds that respond to the events of Jesus's ministry and show their lack of wisdom. Here in Luke 11, Jesus is teaching the people who were gathering around him during his earthly ministry. If you notice what Caleb just read for us in today's passage, there's a, a series of short teachings from Christ. And if you'll notice, each of these teachings were correcting wrong or foolish responses to Jesus and to his ministry. I wonder if any of these wrong responses could be true of you today. Unfortunately, I'm afraid that as we unpack these principles, behind each of these conversations, we'll see that we ourselves often have similar foolish responses to Jesus Christ, similar to what Jesus encountered in his day. If we're honest, we're a bit too much like those interviewees in New York City, who if we had a microphone, held up to our thoughts, we would reveal that we aren't always thinking well about Jesus. Well, we need this passage to help correct our thinking. You see, thinking rightly about Jesus matters. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you need to know this, how you respond to Jesus. You will respond to him. You have to do something with him. But how you think about him is just of incredible importance. And if you're here today and you're a Christian, well, you need to also think carefully about the conclusions you draw from his teaching and from his word. 
My prayer is that as we today look at this passage, that these teachings will help us avoid similar foolish responses. Let's look at a few of the foolish ideas which Jesus Jesus corrects here and see if they're true of us. So if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Luke 11, the passage Caleb just read for us. As I work through this passage, it will just be so much more interesting to you if you follow along in your own Bible and see what I'm saying is coming from the passage. Luke 11, 14 and following. Consider the first wrong idea that we see here in this first section. Number one, bad idea. We don't know about Jesus. We just don't know about Jesus. And that's the wrong response that, or that's one of the wrong responses, it seems that Jesus is addressing here in verses 14 through 24. We just don't know about Jesus. Specifically, we don't, just don't know about Jesus' power and if it's from God. The story begins, you'll see there uh, in verse 14, as Jesus had cast out this demon uh, from, uh, that was mute. And the demon had gone, and the people didn't recognize Jesus' authority. But instead, they seemed to make excuses for what's in front of them. Some of them said they would need to test him. They would need another sign. We'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, Other skeptics suggested that maybe Satan or Beelzebul gave him power over demons. What a foolish suggestion this is from these skeptics. Jesus here exposes that they aren't admitting what is just obvious. His power is from God. So in verse 18, he points out that it's, it's foolish to think that Satan would be destroying his own kingdom. That just doesn't make sense. That would be like a, a self-inflicted civil war, like a kingdom or a, or a house choosing to demolish itself. Then in verse 19, he points out more, more of this foolishness. He says that if he's casting out demons and he's from Satan, then what does that say about their people? Apparently some of them could also cast out demons. No, in verse 20, he says the logical option is that his power over demons means that he is bringing the kingdom of God. Now, by the way, it's, it's interesting here, as others have pointed out, notice that no one ever questioned whether Jesus actually did these miracles. I think you'll see that pattern throughout the Gospels. This is common. Everyone admitted that he had this supernatural power. No, no one that, none, none of the eyewitnesses were standing there wondering if this was happening in front of them. No, they all disputed how he did it. You have to do something with this power that he has. So Jesus tells us uh, what this power, where this power comes from in verse 20. Do you notice this? He says, if this is, if this effortless work of God is his mere finger casting out evil, if that's what's giving Jesus this power, then there's proof. This is proof that God's reign has come in Jesus. By the way, this this finger of God language, it's not the first time we see this in the Bible. If you were to flip back, you don't have to do it now, you can do it this afternoon, but if you flip back to Exodus 8, and you just read the story there of Moses being sent by God before Pharaoh, uh, and he's he's 
given this power. Moses is given this power to work miracles. And this God is preparing to deliver his people from Egypt. And when the Egyptian magicians saw Moses' miracles, they were forced to admit that the power that he has had come from God. And they exclaimed, this is the finger of God. Same expression. Well, here too, Jesus has access to divine power. He, too, was about to bring an exodus, a deliverance of sort, by this power of God that's bringing. And that's the point we see in verse 21. In verse 21, you'll notice there, Jesus gives us an illustration. This is what he says. He says, Satan is like a strong man who's guarding his palace, protecting what he thinks is his. So perhaps you can just think of a, a warlord I don't know, perhaps often Somalia, right? It's a, a warlord who's uh, in control over his palace and his, his, his soldiers are there around him, guarding him on his behalf. Well, Jesus comes in and with his victory over demons and darkness is beginning to overthrow that warlord. Jesus is disarming the forces of evil. This is exactly what Michael read for us earlier in the service from Colossians 2.15. We read, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, that is, in Christ. Friends, this world is in a battle between light and darkness. When it comes to Jesus, there's no question who, which side he's leading. The skeptics might say that they just don't know about Jesus. But Jesus says, you must decide. Look at, down at verse 23. You read there, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. So there's no neutrality in the overthrowing of this warlord. Jesus is here. You must pick a side. By the way, this, this passage, I, I just think, is helpful aside, I think this passage is really helpful in thinking about demons. For some of you, you might be tempted to wrongly think that demons, so spiritual, personal beings who are fallen angels, you might be tempted to think that they're not real. Well, clearly, according to Scripture, they are real. Even if you don't see them, they are real and working. Now, for others of you, you might wonder why we don't see more blatant demonic activity, like what Jesus constantly encounters. Perhaps you've noticed that for much of the Old Testament, we only occasionally see demonic activity. And then a whole lot here in the Gospels, some in Acts, and then relatively little instruction how to deal with them throughout the rest of the New Testament letters. I think this passage helps us understand why this is. Well, as Jesus came and he inaugurated his kingdom, it's almost as if hell was emptied of its forces. And the forces of evil all are coming out in unprecedented numbers. The, the kingdom of evil was protesting the breaking in of the kingdom of God. They did not want their warlord to be overthrown. So practically, I'm not, I'm not saying that we don't ever encounter uh, just vivid demonic activity today. I believe we still do. 
but I don't think we should be confused when we don't see the same regularity or constant encounters like we see Jesus faced. But, but when we do meet darkness in this world, where Christ's kingdom is already here but not yet fully, we should know that Jesus is the stronger man. He's already disarmed that warlord by his cross. The victory is already over. We're fighting from victory, not to victory. Jesus' correction is clear. He is this victorious, stronger man who is victorious. He, we can't just say, we don't know about Jesus. No, neutrality with him is not an option. You know, if you're here today and you're just not sure about Jesus Christ, or, or perhaps you're here and you have uh, friends or coworkers that you're just talking to uh, and you're trying to, to help them think about Jesus, you share the gospel with them, uh, you need to, to see that the Bible presents Jesus not as some distant do-gooder who's doing nice miracles to help people randomly throughout his ministry on earth, no, he is coming as a conquering king who's bringing in the very kingdom of God. You must decide what you will do with him. Christians here today, members, your, your friends and neighbors must decide what they do with this king. You are either for him or against him. We don't have the luxury to make foolish excuses. Let's look at uh, another foolish response to Jesus. Look at verses 24 through 26. I'll, I'll read it for us. Verse 24. When the, the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the person is worse than the first. So here we see a, a, a teaching which confronts a second foolish idea. Here's bad idea number two. We just need to get cleaned up. We just need to get cleaned up. Jesus grabs this illustration of the demon that he just cast out. It's very present on their minds. And, and he uses it to teach a very profound lesson. So demons are spirit beings that can enter into humans, uh, like tenants entering into a rental house, okay? So they exercise control over that, that house that they're living in. Well, if you evict the tenant out of the apartment, you clean out the house without putting a new tenant in, you've increased your, your risk of more squatters. Not only will the demon come back to a clean house, now he'll come back with roommates, Friends, here's the underlying point. Getting yourself cleaned up isn't enough. This principle is just a profoundly biblical one, by the way. The Bible teaches it's true of all of life, not just with demons. Sweeping out your life, cultivating a morality in your life, putting a stop to evil in your heart and sin, and just trying to control it, clean it up as it were, is never enough for true change. As, as people have said, that nature abhors a vacuum. So much, so, so much more our spiritual lives. The reason is that, that your heart 
your soul, your being, was meant to be indwelt by someone. Your heart is like a house, Jesus says, that is designed to be lived in. Now, that might sound strange to you. You feel like, oh, no, I'm autonomous. I'm myself. Well, no, Jesus says, yes, you are yourself, but you are yourself. It's like a house. It's meant to hold something. Something will take up primary residence in your life. And just like you can't merely cast out a demon and expect it not to return, you can't cast away false worship, you can't cast away false idols, and assume your heart will just therefore be right. Your heart is an idol factory. You just put other things in its place. It's John Calvin who says that. So if you clean out your heart without putting something in its place, you'll merely be filled with a greater evil. And friends, you know this to be true already in your lives, don't you? I mean, you know this by, just by your experience with trying to, to get cleaned up and fight sin in your life. Like, how many of you have tried to fight the sins of, I don't know, pick a sin, pick anger in your life, or, or lust? And in the, in the process, you merely replace that evil with a deeper issue of pride or hypocrisy, which are just much more difficult sins to address. Or perhaps you've tried to, to fight out laziness in your heart, and you've just replaced it with a far more difficult sin of self-sufficiency and pride in what you do. Jesus is saying our hearts don't just need evil removed. We need a good power indwelling in us. Thomas Chalmers has this famous article, which is so helpful in this, called The Expulsive power of new affection. The expulsive, so pushing out power, of new affection. He makes the argument that the, the power to truly remove sin in your life is through a new affection in Jesus Christ. Or as Tim Keller says, you will be possessed by something. Something will fill you. You will either be indwelt by sin and darkness, or you will be indwelt by the Holy Spirit what we saw last week in the passage, at the end of the, the passage on prayer. Oh, the good gift that you want in your heart and your life is the Holy Spirit. You want not just merely your behavior cleaned up. Some of you need to clean up your behavior. Some of you have dark backgrounds. Some of you have histories of, of lust or specific sins that feel so entrenched. But you don't just need to clean that up. You need to be filled with Christ himself. So don't fight evil merely by trying to clean out the sin. Fight your sin by replacing it with an all-satisfying and indwelling and pervasive love of God filled with his Holy Spirit. Let's look at that third bad idea, wrong response that Jesus uh, speaks to in his teaching. Look at verses 27 and 28. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And so, no, this is just interesting here. Jesus is, is teaching this crowd as they're, they're gathering around him. And some woman has the boldness to just call out to this rabbi, above the, the noise of the crowd, above his teaching, perhaps. And apparently, she's so impressed with Jesus that she just exclaims how wonderful it is 
that, that Mary birthed him. I mean, perhaps, we don't know, perhaps she was a mom. And she thought to herself how proud she'd be if this type of teacher, this type of man was her son. How blessed Mary must be. Now, interestingly, as we've already studied in the book of Luke, uh, Luke uses, we see the same word for blessed. It's actually speaking about Mary. Indeed, she was blessed to have that privilege. But this time, Jesus corrects the woman's comment. Apparently, her focus on Mary being blessed was just in the wrong place. He needs to readjust it. This is especially helpful for any Roman Catholic friends here today. Uh, love my friends that are Roman Catholic, but just sincerely disagree with you. I don't think it's a biblical idea to venerate Mary in the way that, that the Roman Catholic Church traditionally does. Here we see that. I mean, look at this verse. Jesus is respecting Mary, yes. So seeing, acknowledging her blessing, yes, as a, as a humble servant, wonderful. But he's redirecting away from praise of Mary. What's the wrong response I, that he's speaking to here? Here's the underlying idea. Number three, we just need to be associated with Jesus. We just need to be associated with Jesus. Blessing by proximity is not enough for Jesus. So focusing on Mary's role as the mother of Jesus is not evidence that she is close to Jesus. It's not her motherhood, her affiliation with Jesus, that brings her greatest blessing. What is? Where is her true blessing? Jesus tells us in verse 28, you're blessed when you hear the word of God and keep it. So repentance, again, is the litmus test that we are related to Christ. Not being, not, not a bloodline. It, it, repentance, repentance. Repentance is the birth certificate, as it were, that, that proves that you are born into the family of God. You're in this family. And you show it, you prove it, through your repentance. You hear God's word by faith, and you keep it. Oh, church, I wonder, how do we make this same mistake? I think in so many ways, we very subtly can begin to think that merely being associated with the right things, merely being associated with Jesus ensures true blessing. I don't think any of us would say that as such outright. But, but I wonder, in your heart, are you tempted to rest in false confidences? Perhaps merely attending church on a Sunday morning. Or perhaps calling yourself a Christian. Perhaps calling yourself Baptist. Or considering yourself to be a, a gospel-centered person. Or, or being identified as reformed or having some good, true theology. Or being on the right side of social issues. Whether pro-life or caring for the, the marginalized, whatever it is. All of these things are really good things. But just like being Jesus' mother was a good thing, they are poor evidences of true blessing. Hearing his word in faith and repenting by keeping his word. That's the crucial issue before Christ. Not merely being associated with him. 
just practically, this is one reason why at our members meeting, so next Sunday night at 5 p.m., when we gather and we have a members meeting, uh, we affirm new members as a church, not as families, but who are just associated together uh, as coming in as Christians. They're here to be Christians. But no, we affirm individuals who each show credible faith and credible repentance. Association with Christ is not enough. The same is true here for any students or any, any youth that are with us here today. Same principle. Being in a Christian home is not enough to save you. You can, have, you can have the best parents in the world. You can go to church your whole life. You can have everyone around you think that you're a Christian and still go to hell. Jesus says what you need is to hear God's word by faith and prove that you've heard it. Prove that that, that acceptance of the gospel is real by keeping it. That's the evidence that you're part of God's family. That's true blessing. Mere proximity to Jesus isn't enough. Well, as Jesus is teaching this, uh, his, his teaching is gaining a hearing. So notice where Jesus turns next. Look at verses 29 through 32 with me. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. This story is just incredible to me. The crowds are increasing. So more people are coming to hear Jesus teach. Imagine watching that, like hordes of people coming greater and greater, all coming to hear this rabbi. And Jesus insults them. He verbally slaps them in the face. He says, this generation is an evil generation. By the way, I wasn't taught this line in any of my preaching classes at seminary. Uh, this is never included on workshops for how to grow your church. Like, this is what you should say. No, Jesus is, is not afraid, though, to call people out. He's not afraid to speak direct truth. As one preacher put it, Jesus is no seller of spiritual snake oil. He confronts foolish thinking. He's free of the fear of man. I wonder if that's true of you. Well, what does he call out? A fourth foolish response to Jesus. Bad idea. Saying, we just need another sign. We just need another sign. The people were an evil generation because of their unbelief of seeking for another sign. They're not seeking the king in front of them. They're seeking the signs he's doing. So the only sign he'll give is the sign of Jonah. What's he talking about here? What's the sign of Jonah? It seems that there's a correlation between 
Jonah's preaching ministry and the repentance that he brings, and Jesus in his preaching ministry and the repentance he's calling for. Additionally, Matthew 12 is helpful. You can just jot that down, read it this afternoon. It explains that Jonah was a foreshadowing of the resurrection. This is the sign of Jonah, that just as Jonah had been in the belly of a whale for three nights and then came out alive, so also would Jesus die and be buried and three days later rise again. Jesus' resurrection is the sign greater than any other miracle. That irrefutably, it points to his lordship. You're here today and wondering about Jesus. You should think about this. How do you explain the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, later after Jesus rose from the dead, if you were to read, just read through the book of Acts, you'd see that this theme just keeps coming up. The event that the disciples constantly are, are pointing back to, the sign that they keep mentioning, that they were witnesses of this, was the resurrection of Jesus, the sign of Jonah. Jesus went into the ground for three days. We saw him die, hundreds of us. We saw it happen. He was buried, and then he rose again. And it seems that the disciples can't get over this. In Acts 1, 22, Acts 2, 31, Acts 3, 15, Acts 4, 33, Acts 5, 30, and following, they're all just together repeating time and time again that they were firsthand witnesses to the resurrection. You killed the author of life, they say, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. He was raised from the dead. Friends, we don't need another sign. We look to the resurrection, witnessed by countless, promised for generations, recorded in scripture. We look to that resurrection and we choose to believe. Jesus illustrates how this sign should be enough. His point here is that, that other people have believed based on far less. Look at verses 31 and 32. He points to these two Old Testament stories, the, the Queen of Sheba who came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and the Ninevites, who repented when Jonah preached. So these were two examples that were pagan Gentiles responding to a message they heard. Uh, the Ninevites were horrible people. I mean, they're like modern-day ISIS. Just horrible people. And yet, they, if these type of pagans responded rightly with so little evidence... How much more should this generation respond who sees the resurrection of Jesus? If these pagans responded to foreshadowing and, and previews of the real show, how much should you respond when the evidence of Jesus is clearly in front of you? If these pagans, if they responded and you don't, Jesus says in the final judgment, there's small but real faith will put your unbelief to shame. Because something greater than Jonah and Solomon is here. This word judgment, Jesus, Jesus uses here, it's not a popular word in our culture. It's not a popular word in our day. But, but scripture is clear. One day, we will be judged by our creator. And it will be based on our response to him. He has given us the sign that we can look to, to with confidence. 
If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I just plead with you, look at the resurrection of Jesus. Consider it. Consider this work. We, as humans, we're separated from God because of our sin. We're in trouble before God. But the good news is that Jesus, he didn't leave us in our sin. He came and he lived this perfect life. He died on the cross, taking our place, and he rose again. You have to believe this now. The Bible says that in this life, this is our chance to respond to God in faith. This is our chance to honor God by responding to what he's done. And after life comes judgment. Don't be among those who in that final judgment will be put to shame for people who believe with far less evidence. Jesus came. So, and don't look for another sign. The, the, someone greater than Solomon is here. Someone greater than Jonah is here. Why would you want another sign to look at if he's here? You know, this summer, my family and I went to Disney uh, for a vacation. Spent a day there, got to go for the first time and witness that multi-million dollar production of fireworks there in front of Cinderella's castle. It's like our initiation into Florida, right? We had the joy of standing shoulder to shoulder with 50,000 of our closest friends. <laughs> now, driving to Disney, every so often you'll pass these large billboards that just tell you how many miles you have left. There's signs pointing to the coming attraction. Fairy tale castle silhouettes helping you count down the miles. Uh, well, imagine that you finally make it there to the Magic Kingdom and to Cinderella's castle. And someone just has the bright idea to put up a giant billboard in front of the castle with an impressive picture of fireworks on it. And, in the, and it says on this billboard in just large Disney script, you've made it. Cinderella's castle and fireworks are right behind this sign. Well, friends, <laughs> you'd sit there and you'd call out. Take down the billboard. Take it down. We don't need another sign. We came to see the real thing. Not the sign. Jesus is saying, something greater is standing right here. Jesus is saying, I'm here. Everything that this entire book was pointing to, everything Jonah was about, everything that... That guy, Solomon, everything he was pointing to, it's right here. You don't need another sign propped up in front of the main attraction. And if you wish that you had that, if that's what you want to look at, it's the epitome of evil. It's an evil generation. No, Jesus says, he says it two times, by the way. He says, Behold, did you see that, ver that in verse 31 and 32? Behold. So look, look. 
Something greater is already here. Jesus says, behold, look at me. I'm here. Look and believe. We should conclude. What does it look like to look to Jesus? What is it like? What is it like to not respond to Jesus with foolish answers? What is it like to not be one of those interviewers on the street of New York City uh, offering just foolish responses? Well, Jesus concludes our passage with just this glorious illustration of what it would be like if these people received his teaching. If they looked to the main attraction, it would be, it, it would be like if, if God turned on a light in the dark room of your heart. And the darkness just scatters out to all, and all the, the corners and the nooks and the crannies that are filled with shadows just get increasingly smaller and smaller as this radiant light is just shining into the room of your heart. Verse 33, Jesus compares himself to light. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. So Jesus and his teachings are like light. Verse 33, they're this guiding power that you put on a stand so that others may see by it. And your spiritual perception, verse 34, your eyes are like a lamp that needs light. When your ability to see spiritually is healthy, you are full of light. You're full of the glory and of the teaching and the truth of Jesus Christ. But, but when your spiritual eyes, your spiritual perception is unhealthy, so you just think of unhealthy eyes, you know, like cataracts closing in and the world just becoming more and more dark, you don't see the light. You're in darkness. Oh, beloved, Jesus Christ brings light to your whole life. What, what a glorious illustration. I mean, we could just, we could just spend a whole other sermon just like chewing on, meditating on the glory of, of comparing Christ to the beauty of light. You need Christ. You need the light of Christ. You need his light to light up your life. If your whole self is full of this light, you'll be wholly bright more and more, things will be right and clear to you. I wonder if you've experienced that, Christians here. I mean, just year after year, the more that Christ is just pervading the room of your heart, you're saying it's just getting clearer and clearer, more and more glorious. Like the shadows are just getting smaller and smaller. Like you're figuring out what it means there in that verse to be wholly bright. 
But, Jesus says, be careful. Be careful what you see. You must not only see by this light, you must see the light rightly. Do you see that he says that? He says, if, if be careful lest the light in you be darkness. So you are replacing true light for a false light. You're replacing the sun for a candle. Like a candle looks bright until you bring out the sun. You realize it's useless. It's John Piper's illustration. He says it this way. He says, be careful what you regard as bright and attractive and compelling. If it is not Christ, you will be filled with darkness, no matter how bright that small light seems for a season. So the point is, you've got, you've got to not only see by Christ, you must see Christ. You must behold Jesus. You must behold someone greater is here. Oh, First Boynton, will we behold Jesus? Will we behold him? For, for by him, we will see everything else clearly. Will we behold Jesus? For, for he is that powerful, strong man who, who works with the, the finger of God. Will we behold Jesus? For he is the one who takes up residence in our hearts, in our lives. Will, will we behold Jesus? For his word leads to true repentance. Will we behold Jesus? For he has he's come. He's been resurrected. And we don't need another sign. The main attraction is here and for us. Will you look to Jesus Christ this week? Let's pray together. Almighty God, we come before you and we want to see more of Christ. We want our lives as a church, we want our body, our whole body as a church to be increasingly chasing away the shadows of darkness here. We want to see by his light. We not only want to see that light, we want to look to the light itself. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We glory in him. Father, would you give our church, even this week, each of us a clearer vision of Christ, to behold him more clearly, that we may worship him rightly. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.